Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome everyone. My guest today is Ben Fanger, Managing Partner and Founder at Chorvest Partners. So I think one of the ways to start this is, you know, there, there is this perceived value of, of China and its debt market um, as already starting to experience some sorts of troubles prior to the current COVID crisis. So I wanted to sort of see if you could give us a, a bit of an overview of the journey that we've seen in that market up until today. Yeah, sure, Alex. Um, the, so the Chinese distressed market, and if we're speaking especially specifically about NPLs or non-performing loans, that really started uh, 20 years ago, actually, um, when China set up the four bad banks that it used to transfer a lot of bad loans out of the banks and then start to have the AMCs, uh, begin, the, the bad banks or the AMCs start to resolve them. And... And that's and the first time people were investing in non-performing loans, you know, mostly around 15 years ago in China. Um, and I would call that the first cycle. So between around 2005 and 2008, there was a sell-off of non-performing loans. And that's when people really cut their teeth on kind of what does it mean to go through the legal process in China to enforce on these loans? Um, what are the loans? You know, they're all corporate loans. Uh, can you enforce on collateral? Those kinds of questions got answered back then. And then in 2009, China ended that cycle by flooding the market with credit. And so we saw the biggest credit boom in the history of the world, at least as a percentage of GDP, uh, begin in China in 2009, which then, as is the case in any market, when you have a flood of credit, it's very unlikely that banks will be recognizing and selling non-performing loans during that period of time because there aren't new defaults happening. And so between 2009 and 2015, there, there weren't very many distressed opportunities in China. Uh, but then starting in 2015 and 16, we began to see the loans from that massive credit boom start to come due. And anytime you have a massive credit boom, you have some of those loans that will go not, uh, go into default and, and become non-performing because a flood of credit inevitably is is goes together with lower underwriting uh, standards. So non-performing loans during this cycle started to come out, mostly beginning in 2017, uh, and that's when China began a series of regulatory catalysts that were pushing the banks to recognize and sell their non-performing loans. So one aspect of the pre-pandemic period, and I would call that between 2017 and the beginning of this year, was that China was really aggressively trying to get it to clean up its banks by having them recognize and sell their non-performing loans. So that sort of credit cycle is one element of, of this sort of history. Um, and it relates to what the government is doing. It relates to, did the banks lend uh, more than more than they w- would have wanted to if they didn't want to see a lot of non-performing loans come out? 
But another piece of, of the history and the cycle is the economic side of it. And over the last half a decade or so, China's really been uh, much more intent on letting the economy do its thing for the most part. So, and that means the deceleration that has occurred in China's uh, economic growth is something that's also produced distress over the last uh, few years. Uh, not, not, I wouldn't call it serious distress. It's nothing that, you know, wasn't manageable for China, but, but it was something that was producing more companies that were defaulting on loans and that were becoming non-performing. And then also on the special situation side of a distressed investor's business, you know, the ability to do more rescue financings, bridge financings, and so forth. So that was all prior to uh, the, the COVID-19 pandemic. So, so once we've now hit the COVID-19 pandemic and we've seen the full shutdown, I guess I'm curious to sort of see what's then happened um, within the Chinese economy. You know, in the last financial crisis, 2008, China really came, came in strongly with a huge amount of uh, fiscal support and, and credit to banks. Um, it doesn't seem like we've seen that this time. So curious in terms of what have you seen in the, in these last few months in terms of the government support to try and keep things going and, and also specifically to to this loan market, this, uh, you know, typical loans? And are you starting to see a, a tick up in the non-performing loans at, at this time? Yeah, so, uh, so really we have not seen China repeating at 2009. So China hasn't begun to tell the banks flood the market with credit. And I think that's largely because they just spent the last three or four years really, really focused on trying to clean up the banks. And so if they just sort of at the first sign of a, of a crisis <laughs> turned back to the 2009 playbook, then you know they'd be erasing all of the progress they've made in cleaning up the banks. So uh, we have not seen them go back to that. We have seen... Uh, a more kind of rifle shot approach rather than a shotgun approach to, to providing stimulus and help to the system where it needs it uh, from uh, tax breaks to SMEs to, uh, to specifically COVID-19 related loans, uh, encouraging the banks uh, to implement forbearance, which is I think what most other company, countries in the world have been doing. So that's nothing unusual. Uh, but in terms of the legacy non-performing loans, and it's a very big number, it's something in the trillions of dollars. The, the estimates of NPLs pre, pre-COVID were between 1.5 and some estimates over 3 trillion US dollars. So that's a very large amount that they had existing to resolve. And what we've seen in terms of those legacy non-performing loans is just a continued sort of same as, as they were doing before COVID. So uh, banks recognizing them, selling them through the AMCs into the market to people like us, where they could get a buyer. Um, the one difference is you have a lot fewer uh, potential buyers in China with liquidity to be able to buy these non-performing loans, and so that's likely to it's likely to cause some downward pressure on the on the pricing uh, that the sellers can can get for the loans they're trying to sell. Uh, in terms of COVID-related uh, effect on NPL flow and pricing, that's probably not going to come through to, to surface until probably end of this year or even into next year and the year after. The reason for that is 
number one, China has encouraged the banks to exercise some amount of forbearance for COVID-related defaults. Uh, and number two, even when they do begin to recognize them post-forbearance, the banks have 90 days before they have to recognize a defaulted loan as non-performing. And then there's some time as they kind of prepare for a transaction to sell it and then sell it through one of the bad banks, which are essentially the clearinghouses through which, through which these loans come out into the market. So, so the COVID-related defaults, uh, I don't expect those not to become non-performing loans for some time, but China already had a massive multi-trillion dollar mountain of, of debt to, to resolve. And, and the good news for China is that much of the losses have already been taken on that. So in the last five or six years, uh, the banks have taken something around a trillion dollars of write downs and uh, for legacy non-performing loans. And a lot of that has yet to be sold. So, you know, to kind of put it more simply, uh, the pandemic has not necessarily caused an immediate spike in non-performing loans. Uh, that said, there was already a very significant flow from the legacy non-performing loans, and we do expect pricing to get more attractive as we near the end of this year and into next year on the NPL side. On the special situation side, where we're providing bridge loans to companies that can't refinance a bank loan or they're in some short-term distress for obvious reasons, which are that millions of companies had a few months of no revenue or significantly reduced revenue. There are a very large number of companies that need bridge financings and the banks aren't necessarily providing that because as I said before, you know, China's not repeating the 2009 playbook. So because of that, we've seen special situations get a lot more attractive immediately, uh, where the NPLs probably will uh, as some months go by. Now, I'm curious when you, when you think about the the non-performing loans that were that were historically there, and you talk about sort of the pricing that that's attached to them. You know, is there is there you know, sort of signs that COVID is starting to affect the collateral behind some of these loans? You know, the the property that that maybe was there, or some other assets that back these loans. You know, is is there now a, a bigger risk? that sits behind some of these NPLs? Uh, yeah, that's a great question because uh, at the end of the day, we are our strategy is essentially an asset-backed debt strategy. So it, whether it's non-performing loans or special situations, you know, bridge loans and rescue financings, either way, we're almost always investing in senior secured loans that are backed by buildings. And so it really matters, you know, is the collateral still liquid? Does it retain its value? Um, and I think, so what we've seen so far is that uh, in the first quarter of this year, uh, there, was, there was definitely, there was a very significant impact on real estate transaction volumes. So uh, I think in first and second tier cities, the real estate transaction volumes were down about 40% uh, versus Q1 of 2019. Pricing was about the same, so it was about flat. So we haven't seen the, the pandemic cause a, a significant decline in, in prices yet, but we have seen a significant decline in transaction volumes in Q1. In March, that started to come back. So uh, we're seeing it sort of head toward 
normalcy at, at some point in the coming months. Um, but but yeah, it definitely has an impact. I mean, fortunately for for investors like us, we don't we don't price to anything close to uh, the the value of the underlying collateral. So we're buying NPLs at about a third of the underlying collateral's value. Uh, and usually the special situations we do are also less than 50% loan to value. So there's, there's a, and they're senior, they're first lien. So there's a lot of room to go before, uh, in terms of collateral uh, value decline before we hit our principal. And we haven't had any situation yet where, where we would see, you know, capital loss because of the, the pandemic. Uh, that being said, if we were an equity holder in real estate and we had and we were heavily levered, that would be an entirely different story because if you're levered 80% loan to value and prices go down 20%, you've just you've just uh, lost your shirt. So well, can you give a bit more context in terms of you know the types of businesses that that you're now lending to in these special situations or non-performing loans? Yeah, because there, there is a huge market out there. I think if you could sort of give a bit more context on on that, so that you know, the people who are listening can sort of feel okay, what what's the sector that you're that you're looking at specifically, or maybe you know, there's, it's a broad broad brush. Yeah, I mean, I think there there are a couple of ways to to categorize the the companies. So one would be to say, okay, what industries are they? Another way to categorize would be to divide between, okay, are they state-owned enterprises or privately owned companies? Uh, another way would be to, to look at, are they really, are they, are they the largest companies in China? Are they SMEs? You know, what size are they? Um, in terms of industry, we see non-performing loans across every industry, but because we are focused on those loans that are first lean on real estate, uh, we don't generally, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty rare that we're, un, we're including very many loans that are uh, service industry that don't own their buildings, um, you know, tech companies that don't own their buildings. So, but, but the kinds of things we see a lot of uh, and include a lot of in our portfolios are, are um, you know, things like the manufacturing sector. Um, sometimes they're real estate developers and, we're, and the collateral we have is residential buildings. Um, sometimes hotel chains, uh, uh, other, uh, any company that owns their own office building. So a lot of companies in China, regardless of the industry, will own the building that they operate in. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, that you know, any of those loans, regardless of industry, would be a target for us because we're not so much making a bet on the, the, the view that a particular industry or company is going to come back or, or survive, but rather the fact that we have a first lien on that building because an office building, even if our borrower is a tech company that's going under, uh, we can sell that office building to any number of other companies. So, uh, but they're all companies and mostly companies that you know own some real estate and that's being used as the collateral for the loans we buy at about a third of that collateral value. Uh, in terms of private company versus SOEs, SOEs, state-owned enterprises tend to be able to get bank loans when they need them in most cases. So we're not we're not we're not often buying SOE loans. Fifteen years ago, when we began investing in this space, uh, there were a lot more SOE NPLs that we were buying back then, just because they constitute a, a larger 
amount of, of uh, China's economy and, and the bank lending. Um, but today, probably 90% of the loans we buy are privately owned company borrowers. Uh, in terms of size, it kind of ranges, but we, we usually don't get so big that there, there could be some kind of kind of high profile bankruptcy that's, that's extremely complicated. Our, and so for that reason, most of the companies that are our borrowers are, are kind of mid-size, mid-size companies. Now, I guess one of the, the questions that comes to mind for, for the listeners then is, you know, China and China's legal system and, and how do you enforce some of these, you know, these contracts and transactions that, that you're doing? You know, is, is there a particular maybe area in China, a municipality that maybe is more, you know, friendly from a legal perspective, you know, particularly as people think about foreign investors um, within China and the controls that are, you know, that are perceived to be there? How, how do you, you know, think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, so in terms of a particular geography, the nice thing about China is that it is, uh, it employs national law. So it's not, it's not as if we have, you know, 50 different state laws that you'd have to consider when you're enforcing credit like you do in the United States. So in that sense, it's simpler. And it's also good that that's the case for us because Beijing is very much one of our best friends. So the government, the national government in China wants to see the non-performing loans resolved. They wanna see the legal system work with predictability. They don't want local government interference with that because they recognize that if the legal system doesn't work in China in a transparent and predictable way, nobody's gonna come buy these non-performing loans. Nobody's gonna buy real estate in China. Nobody's gonna invest in China. So. Beijing is very much on the side of the creditor in this regard. Um, and, and they have been pretty active at implementing uh, procedure, uh, civil procedure rules that, that uh, make life easier for us over time. So uh, 10, 15 years ago, when we were for, first in front of uh, judges in China enforcing credit, uh, it probably took four or five years to get through the legal process on a plain vanilla case. Um, today, a plain vanilla non-performing loan case would take 18 to 24 months, usually sometimes as long as, as three years. So it's a lot faster these days. A lot of that is because in January of 2017, uh, the, the highest court in China uh, promulgated rules that uh, sped up the process and basically they told the judges in China, you need to be done with your non-performing loan cases in 18 months, and you need to report back to Beijing how quickly you were done. What's your average months to case closure? So if you're a judge sitting in Nanjing and somebody brings a non-performing loan case to you and Beijing has told you, you better be done in 18 months, and you also have to report back to Beijing whether you were done in 18 months, you can imagine how quickly that's gonna get done. It's gonna get done in 18 months in most cases. Now there are exceptions to that. And this is where most foreign investors really find themselves uh, deep in, in the mud. Uh, and, and these kinds of exceptions are, are usually situations where there's risk of social unrest. So if the building that we wanna auction uh, employs thousands of people and there's no potential buyer that can continue to employ those people. So essentially you have to, you have to lay off hundreds or a thousand people. 
then the government, or especially the local government, is going to be very concerned that there's going to be protests and so forth. And I don't think that's very different than what you'd find in many developed uh, countries that have kind of labor considerations uh, and social unrest considerations uh, and policy considerations with the way they treat these citri these cases. But uh, our approach to this is basically to every time we're buying a non-performing loan portfolio, we're cherry, we're basically cherry picking what's in it. So we're picking through, we're sitting down with the seller and saying, okay, show us everything you have and let's include loans that fit our, uh, our the kind of in loans that we're willing to invest in and, and exclude loans that uh, we might find too risky or something that we don't think we can enforce. And so the kind of situation that we would be kicking out of a portfolio before we buy it would be one where there's risk of social unrest because that creates uncertainty in the court process. Um, the last thing I'll say, I don't want to make it sound easier than it is. So we've been in thousands of cases enforcing credit in China. Um, and I've personally signed all of the legal filings for all of those cases. And it is not something that I would say is you know, simple if you don't have a lot of experience. Is, is there a particular um, flag that you can see with, with cases that are going to be more successful? You know, is there, um, maybe they have assets in, in other countries that you can potentially tap onto. Does that provide a, an incentive? You know, it's a Chinese company, but they have, you know, buildings uh, in the US or Australia or Hong Kong, for example. You know, is there some other flags that you look at in terms of cases that are maybe easier to collect on? Yeah, I'm, so Alex, the, what you just raised is a very, very common fallacy in our in our space, which is the idea that it's easier to enforce outside of China. It's not easier to enforce outside of China. Um, it, it the reason for that, I mean, of course, if if you have a Chinese company with a building in Los Angeles and you're in a Los Angeles court enforcing on that building, but you have no you don't need to proceed against the Chinese company itself in China, then sure, that, that could be more, uh, more predictable or maybe as predictable as a court, a simple plain vanilla court enforcement of a senior loan on a building in China. But you're in a much worse situation outside of China if you're trying to enforce against the Chinese operating company in China. That, I mean, you have to translate everything into Chinese. You have to get a judgment in your favor in the offshore jurisdiction, then then bring it to China and somehow get a Chinese court to enforce that in China. Um, all of this is creates very significant complexities that uh, create a lot of un, uh, a lot of unpredictability. And uh, by but conversely, you know, you ask the question: Are there flags that? would mean something's easier to enforce. And, and I would say, yes. So number one, the collateral value is much, is much higher than your loan amount. So at the end of the day, we're not just enforcing in courts. In fact, most of the cases we're settling with the borrower outside of court. The borrower says, okay, look, you guys paid 30 cents on the dollar for my loan. I didn't want to pay a hundred to the bank, but could you take 60 or could you take 50? That's usually what happens. So 
a, a discounted payoff through a settlement is usually the the is usually our exit. The, another kind of exit is us selling the loan to some other local investor who's interested in using the courts to get ownership of the collateral, which you can do. So the creditor can take ownership of the underlying collateral if it goes through two court auctions and doesn't trade either in either auction. Uh, so we've, we sell a lot of loans to those kind of buyers. The, neither of these require us to go through the full court process and auction a building. Uh, but then if we do need to auction a building, it's also very important that we've paid a price that's far below the collateral value. Um, and that, so that's one thing I would flag as, as extremely important. And I would also say that, you know, you could look on the face of a loan and think you're a senior secured loan, but you're actually not. And the kind of case that would be would be, you know, like the situation I mentioned before with a, a building that the court's not going to be, is going to be reluctant to auction because of social unrest issues. But it could also be because there's a junior creditor, so mezzanine from a wealth management product that was sold to thousands of grandmothers in China who will be completely wiped out if you auction the building at your principal balance because there won't be any residual left for those retail investors. That sort of situation, you have to be able to spot that before buying a loan. Um, so in essence, the simplest loans where there's just a lot of margin of safety in the collateral value. We've paid a very low price. And we've done all, of course, we've done all of our legal due diligence to make sure there are no defects in the loan documents. And finally, there aren't these other kind of, you know, potential policy issues or social unrest issues. That would be the kind of loan that would be fairly straightforward for us. Let's move to the sort of the, comp the competition and dynamics amongst the distressed uh, investors. I know there's been a lot of interest in the Australian market particularly and there's a lot more of these distressed uh, groups that are rubbing their hands given the, the recent pullback. I was curious again to get your thoughts on, on what's been happening in China given given that that market's sort of been growing. You know, what, what are you seeing there in terms of other players maybe moving in and, and potential competition for deals, right? Because that's makes it obviously more challenging to collect and you've got to pay you've got to pay a higher price potentially if you've got competition so if you could give a bit of color on on the backdrop yeah well uh foreign competition so there are there are three kinds of competition so the first is foreign competition which is is what i think most of the listeners to this uh this discussion will be familiar with so you, you have you know global distressed debt funds that have massive pools of capital and they're primarily usually primarily kind of based out of the us or europe um, and that's usually where most of their experience is um, and and so that's one set another set is uh chinese investors in distressed debt and and so they're they're managing rmb in China, um, you know, they probably have more experience than the foreign investors, but not that much more because even Chinese investors in, have not been really focused on distressed debt until the last three or four years. They've been my, mainly focused on opportunistic kind of equity oriented returns prior to that. And then the third kind of competition, so to speak, is the seller's reserve price. So the seller in a sense is competition. If they're not willing to drop the price to a level that we can make the returns we want, 
then then in essence, they keep it instead of selling it, right? We're not gonna buy it at a price that's too high for our targeted return and, and margin of safety. So the first category, the foreign investors haven't really moved the needle in this space ever, uh, not for the last 15 years. And during the last cycle, there were about a dozen different players that were foreign that tried to come in between 2002 and 2008 to to buy NPLs in China. Um, I'm not aware of any of them that built a lasting business out of it other than our platform. Uh, And the reason for that, I believe, is was that uh, most were managed by people that they sent over, English-speaking people, but not Chinese-speaking people that had no experience in China, kind of being sent over from the West to hire on a team of people to do this. And usually the team of people they hire are, you know, kids who went to school at Harvard or something, you know, got their MBA at Harvard or, you know, something like that, because they're, they're able to communicate with these people. But you have a, you have an inverse correlation between a person's ability to speak English and their usefulness in the NPL space. That's actually a cut against myself because I was born in America, but I, I'm speaking English to you right now, but I, I never speak English on a day-to-day basis and everything we do is in Chinese. So it really requires a very local platform and, and just seamless local operating capability and sourcing capability. Um, and that's something that, at least during the last cycle, no foreign group that was, you know, really invested enough in that to, to build something lasting. Currently, there have been there have been half a dozen groups or so that have done a few different deals the last three or four years. Um, some of the largest names in in the space globally, uh, I would say about half of them have had run into kind of pretty significant problems and probably won't be continuing. And I think usually the problems they run into are buying portfolios at too high a price, or they think a particular piece of collateral is something you can auction when you can't. And and so I, I don't expect the foreigners. Uh, they probably constitute a couple percent of the market right now. Um, so most of it is domestic investors, and it's mostly very fragmented, uh, smaller investors in smaller portfolios. Kind of usually, a, a, a domestic investor will be buying portfolios that are five to ten, sometimes fifteen million U.S. dollars purchase price, and they're kind of focused on a particular geography. Um, and then the final thing is the seller's reserve price. Uh, that really depends on how much pressure they have to sell. The government regulations and how how forceful they are in, in encouraging them to sell. Fortunately, that's all been on our side since 2017, when there's been kind of a series of, of regulations forcing banks to recognize the losses and sell the loans. Um, so we've seen pricing reserve pricing among the sellers coming down uh, for the last uh, two or three years, and that that's been good for us. I, with time, some of the foreigners will learn this business. But it really takes, it's not like pressing buttons and buying, sell, buying and selling stocks. You, know, it's, you have to build an entire operating capability within China. Well, that was my next question, which is, you know, you talk about a platform and, and the team that you need. And, and, and ultimately, in, in this space, deal flow is, is critical and, and getting access. So can you, can you give a bit more background on, on, on sort of how do you, you know, 
sort of create that deal flow? Like wh- where are you going? Is there particular groups or banks that you worked closely with? Yeah. Uh, well, um, this is something that also helps us and I think hurts competition which or, or would be competition, basically creates another kind of moat around the market, which is that China, the, the, the touch points among sellers that you would go to to, uh, to source deals are myriad. So it's not like my understanding of, uh, you know, occasionally I'll, I'll be in Europe and speak at a, a debt conference there or something, and I'll kind of rub shoulders with people that buy <clears throat> non-performing loans there. And my understanding from that, and also from speaking with our own LPs who, who uh, have also invested in European distressed funds. My understanding is that usually you have these kind of uh, very centralized auctions uh, where the seller sets up an interlinks data room and they've got an intermediary to kind of do a whole data tape and analysis of the portfolio for any buyers that want to come look. And then you have you know a couple dozen investors come and bid on the same portfolio. You never have that happen in China because the the selling the selling decisions get made at the local offices of the banks and AMCs, and there are hundreds of these offices across China. Just among the AMCs, the bad banks, they have over a hundred offices across China. Then you have the banks themselves, where we're sourcing deals sometimes directly with the bank, and their offices are all over China. There's no centralized kind of auction process. And there's, to say nothing of a centralized and standardized information sharing process. So you, you don't have any sort of third party that's kind of recognized as being able to put together a data set for an NPL portfolio or, or kind of do appraisals. Of course, you have real estate appraisers in China and you have some international appraisers that, are, that have enough of a database in China to be useful, but that doesn't, that doesn't you know, just the real estate values doesn't give you a value on, on a portfolio. So the way we source a portfolio is to go, uh, you know, sit down with a seller in their local office, drink tea, talk to them about the portfolios, the things that they need to sell, and then just actively construct a portfolio that meets their needs because they've got quotas of things they need to sell and also meets our needs in the sense that we're including those things that the price we'd be willing to pay is higher than the, the price the seller is willing to sell at. So you have to kind of actively take your bushel and fill it with apples that you that, that meet our, our criteria. And for that reason, uh, in the last 15 years of doing dozens of NPL portfolios, purchasing dozens of NPL portfolios. There's only two situations I can remember where there was a competitor in the room. Those are both in 2008 uh, when it was at the tail end of the last cycle. And, and so anytime you're at the end of an NPL cycle, you have fewer deals. And so there, and so the last few investors will, will kind of all show up to that. So each of those had competitors, but no other deal we've done uh, that I can remember actually had, you know, was, was really competitive. And, you know, maybe China will head toward the direction of there being kind of Beijing based auctions that 
you know, you have a lot more information shared and so forth. But as of today and in, in my entire career, it's always been we have to go actively do the due diligence, find the information ourselves and construct the portfolios sitting down with the seller. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Ben. Yeah, thank you, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.